0: This morning, among other things, we're gonna be talking about rainbows. This is a rainbow that Pastor Walt took from his home, looking out at the East White Oak Bible Church building. Uh, Looks pretty nice, doesn't it? You know, as we get into the text this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter eight. Genesis chapter eight, we'll begin at verse 20 and make our way through the end of chapter 9. I just want to preface my remarks by saying that we're going to be getting into some pretty heavy topics today, but don't miss the big point. So here are some of the big topics we're going to get into. We're going to get into the topic of overpopulation. We'll get into the topic of global climate change, we'll get into the topic of um, capital punishment, we'll get into the topic of vegetarianism, like what, where in the world are you going, it's all here in this passage, and so I am sure, I am sure to offend everybody here, okay, I'm sure to do it, but know this, What my goal is and what we all ought to do is approach this from saying, what do the scriptures say? Having the scriptures be our authority rather than us be the one that dictates what the Bible says. So really, if you have ever are a person who prays before the pastor shares his message, Here's a moment for you to offer a quick prayer, Lord help him, right? We're in a series called Beginnings of Good and Evil, Life and Death, Sin and Salvation, Genesis 1 through 11. This is the next to last of these messages, and uh, it's, I think, going to be one that uh, for sure, as we think about the establishment of um, a lot of different things, brings us to so this grand conclusion. I'm going to tell you the conclusion before I, get, before, before I even start. There is a treaty God makes with all of the inhabitants of the earth, human beings and animals, that he's never going to destroy the earth by a flood again. And it is a treaty not because people deserve it or animals deserve it. It is because God's gracious And there is a treaty that God makes at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is for everyone who will believe. It is not based on our works like we could earn it or deserve it. We simply receive God's gracious gift of eternal life through Christ. So we'll be looking at these two treaties as we make our way through all of these rather complicated topics. Would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? We uh, do that here at East White Oak as a way of saying, God, we're listening to you. We want to hear your word. Genesis eight twenty, and I will read through chapter 9, verse 17. If you see someone alongside you that doesn't have a Bible, share your Bible or your phone with them, if your phone is open to the scriptures. <laughs> Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Please have a seat. We begin with the extravagance of sacrifice. Noah builds an altar. Why? Well, in the words of Derek Kidner, he did so because Noah's first thought after getting out of the ark, after the flood, is Godward. He is declaring God's worth. He's renewing his dedication to God and the concept for atonement for wrong. You know, he's recognizing these, all these things in this act of sacrificing an animal. Now, this is an extravagant thing on Noah's part, I believe. Why is it extravagant? Well, the animals that get killed by this sacrifice are gone forever, and there's not very many of them (laughs) to be able to replenish the earth. What is is going on here in Noah's offering of this sacrifice is a statement by Noah of acknowledgement that the earth is the Lord's Not Noah's. Oh, that's an important concept for us, isn't it? Because as we go around our daily lives, we have a way of looking at things and things interfere with our goals and our plans and we think, we get frustrated by them. I just read, yes, this weekend of a woman who went ballistic at McDonald's because they got her Happy Meal order wrong. There's an irony there, isn't there? In going ballistic because your Happy Meal is bad. Um, and by the way, all I, I'm just glad whenever I'm at a McDonald's that I get food, it, you know, whatever it comes out. It, okay, that's good, you know. But, uh, but that is a statement in microcosm of how we think that the earth is mine. Noah is saying here by this sacrifice, it's yours, God. Do with it what you please. Do with what you will with my life. I'm, I'm surrendered to you. God makes a promise then in verse 21 of chapter 8. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. He, he smelled the aroma. This is the language of accommodation. God doesn't actually have nostrils or olfactory glands Rather, it is a language that is stating this so that we would understand that God is wanting to connect with you and me. Offerings go up to heaven. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says Christ himself was offered as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says that the Philippians' financial gifts were a to his, min- to his own ministry are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In 2 Corinthians 2, we read that we, you and I, who are believers in Jesus, are the aroma of Christ to God, to both those who are being saved, as well as to those who do not know Jesus, and the Bible describes them as perishing. Notice it says that the Lord said in his heart, again, the language of accommodation, and he explains what he won't do. He's not going to curse the earth again because of man's sinfulness. And he explains why he won't do it again. It's not because man won't ever be that sinful again. You know, a lot of people think, well, before the flood, everybody was really, really bad, and that's why God destroyed it, and now after the flood, we're a little bit better. No, no. Wrong answer. It's not that our hearts, the human heart, has not changed. We are just as sinful, just as inclined to do evil. The stark fact is that we have sinful hearts that won't be on their own changed. The reason God won't do it, the reason God won't curse the ground, won't destroy the earth again by a flood, is his grace God's gracious we see this in the new testament in Romans chapter 3 there's this acknowledgement all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that's our condition and are justified by his grace as a gift it isn't something that we're just trying to have our good works outweigh our bad ones and somehow we're going to make it no 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 We are made right by his grace as a gift. How? Through the purchase price that is in Christ Jesus. God put Jesus forth as a propitiation, that is, a satisfaction of God's justice, his wrath even, when he shed his blood, and it is to be received. How? By believing it, by faith. That shows God's righteousness because in the past He overlooked sins, but now it shows His righteousness in the present time so that God can be two things. He is just at judging sin, all of His justice was poured out on Christ at the cross. And he is the justifier. That is, he makes you and me righteous. How? Because we have faith in what Jesus did to forgive us of our sins. God's promise. Now it's a promise that holds today. Look at verse 22 while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, notice these last three words, shall not cease. Seasons will exist. Varying temperatures will exist. Light and dark will exist. And this brings up the questions that have been taught to children at least since 1970, which is, The earth is right on the edge of utter destruction environmentally. And so I want to take a little bit of a moment and kind of review for you where we're at, both in terms of world thinking and in terms of what this verse means. Because, okay, if you look at what everybody says and what the Bible says, which is more important? It's not even close, right? We trust what the Bible says. The Bible says, while the earth remains, until God destroys it, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So, let's ask a few questions. Is the earth cleaner today than it used to be? You know, the first earth day was uh, 52 years ago. And at that time, people were describing that catastrophe awaited us. Mass starvation, lost farmland, overpopulation, oil and gas running out, early death, nuclear winter, and believe it or not, a coming second ice age was what was being talked about then. And every single one of those predictions was not only wrong, they were spectacularly wrong. The opposite occurred. But we still have the purveyors of doom and gloom it still permeates our schools and our cultures. In sum, that statement of doom is that our planet is in a miserable state and that uh, we are going to have horrors visited upon us and soon. However, here are some facts for you. Air and water is cleaner than ever. Since the late 70s, pollutants in the air have plunged. Lead pollution, for example, has dropped 90%. Carbon monoxide and sulfur dioxide by more than 50%. Ozone and nitrogen dioxide declining as well. By every standard measure, the air is much, much cleaner today in the United States than it was 50 years ago, and that it was 100 years ago. 100 years ago, In the United States, one in four deaths in America was due to contaminants in the drinking water. Let that settle on you. One out of four people died in the United States 100 years ago because of the uncleanliness of the water they drank. From 1971 to 2002, which is where I have the statistics, fewer than three people per year in the United States died due to contaminated water. The number of people in abject poverty fell by one billion people between 1981 and 2011, even as global population increased by more than 1.5 billion. Global per capita food production is 40% higher today than as recently as 1950. In most nations, the nutrition problems today are having to do with obesity, Too many calories consumed, not hunger. The number of famines and related deaths over the last hundred years has fallen in half. But surely we are raping our forests, right? No, total tree gains on the east coast of the United States have doubled in the last 70 years. We've got twice as many trees on the eastern side of the United States than we did 70 years ago. Early on, when people were estimating how many trees there were in the world, uh, scientists figured out there were half a trillion trees. It turns out that their estimate was off by six times. There are now known 3.04 trillion trees in the world. I'd be interested in knowing who counted those. It's a mind boggling number, though. In the United States, with 8% of the world's forests, did you know that there are more trees in the entire United States than there were a hundred years ago? Forest growth has exceeded harvest in the United States since the 1940s. Now, temperatures in some places in the United States, Russia and China, are as much as a half to two-thirds of a degree warmer. And it is true that there are places where we could say that the earth is warming but did you know that it's debated about what's causing that and one of the biggest contributors is that there is less soot and sulfate particles from car exhaust and burning coal now which normally cool the atmosphere temporarily by reflecting the sun's heat So is the earth cleaner today than it used to be? The answer is yes, 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 by any measure in the last century. Second question, are the dire predictions of climate change advocates true? And the answer is that they have not been. It's hard to test predictions that have not yet reached their expiration date, but those that have reached their expiration date are remarkable for being so wrong. For example, I mentioned all of the ice age predictions from the 60s and 70s. There was the prediction of acid rain killing life in lakes and regional droughts that would happen in the 1990s. Uh, that the Maldive Islands would be underwater by 2018, that was predicted in 1988, they're not. That rising sea levels would obliterate nations if nothing is done by 2000, did not happen. In 1989, it was predicted that New York City's West Side Highway would be underwater by 2019, it's not. It was predicted in 2000 that children would not know what snow is, that's not true. And you should just take our budget for snow removal as, a, uh, as evidence of that. Um, there was predictions of an ice-free Arctic, that the Arctic would be out of ice. Uh, it was predicted in 2008 that it would happen in 2018. Another predictor said it would happen in 2013. Then he moved it to 14, And then he moved it to 2015. There were others that said, for example, Prince Charles said in 2009 that we have 96 months to save the world. In 2014, only 500 days before climate chaos, that overpopulation will spread worldwide. It was predicted in 1966 that oil would be gone in 10 years. And then in 1972, it would be gone in 20 years. And then, It was predicted in 1977 that it would peak in in the 1990s and then in 2000 and then 2010 and then 2020 and it was predicted in 2005 that Manhattan would be underwater by 2015 and on and on it goes. In 1970s it was predicted killer bees would conquer the earth and in 2021 the same idea only murder hornets were going to destroy us. Are the dire predictions of climate change advocates true? Not so far. What are the solutions of climate change advocates and are those solutions correct? Well, the solutions are, as nearly as I can figure out, are that the governments of the world and preferably a world government should tax carbon use in order to slow its use and that the money gained from such carbon credits should be given to third world governments in order to achieve economic equity and to help them in achieving environmentally sustainable economic growth. And the worldwide economic growth over the past 40 years is seen as a threat to survival. And then, from that, these third world governments then distribute the carbon credit funds to their citizens to achieve worldwide economic equality. To that, there are some problems. The carbon taxes stay largely in the hands of big governments in the West. Those monies that are given to third world leaders tends to stay in their pockets, but their people are now prohibited by treaty from their own economic freedoms. And in the meantime, the middlemen who get the carbon tax money from one hand and send it along to these third world governments Keep a big portion of the funds and get very, very wealthy. And I know that because I know one of them personally. Countries like China do not care about such matters and become the world's greatest polluters and exporters of pollution in the form of bribing world leaders to allow them to rape their environments. I've seen it firsthand in the Solomon Islands where Carol and I have gone just about every two years since 2009. In 2009, we went there, the fish market, had these huge tuna, over a thousand pounds. You go there today, there are no tuna, why? Because the Solomon Islands government has permitted the Chinese fishing industry to come in and destroy all of the fish that are in the territorial waters of the Solomon Islands. They're doing that with logging as well. Does the fact that these climate change advocates and their solutions are wrong mean that we should not care for the environment? Does it mean that there are no environmental problems? Absolutely not. Some Christians even make the mistake of thinking that there's no such thing as environmental irresponsibility. No, 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 there is. Some people accuse Christians of thinking that, well, since God's going to destroy the earth someday by fire anyway, we might as well not care about the environment. Well, that's wrong too. Both of those are wrong because they're both sinful notions. I call it sin because of God's commission to the human race found in Genesis 128 to be Stewards, to exercise stewardship over the environment. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That means to steward it. So, that's the world of the first controversy. You can now wake up if you happen to have not liked those words. More bad things are coming Let's think about the renewal of the creation mandate with some changes. Chapter nine, God blessed Noah and his son said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a command that he never rescinded. It's a command that comes from Genesis 128. There's no repeal of the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. People should have children if they can have children. It's part of the divine mandate for human beings. People are blessings. People are producers, they're not environmental blights. In case you think, well it's hopelessly overpopulated the planet and it's unsustainable, no it's not. And I mentioned in my message in Genesis chapter one that you could put every person on the planet in the state of Texas, give every person a thousand square feet and every person on the planet would fit in the state of Texas. The earth is not overpopulated. Now, with the creation mandate comes some changes, verses 2 through 7 of chapter 9. That is, the earth post-flood is very different than the earth pre-flood. This is another reason why we should think of the flood as a worldwide event. Verse 2, there's a new relationship between human beings and animals, Look at it. The fear of you, the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Now, we don't know any different, but the world before the flood didn't have that same sense, so that when you saw a bird, it didn't fly away. When you saw an animal, it didn't run. There's a different world of relationship now, a relationship that the Bible calls fear and dread between the animal world and human beings. It's, that's why Eve was not scared when she saw the serpent in the garden. And today, I dare say, if any of you see a serpent in your garden, you would have a just maybe a modicum of fear, right? I wonder what it is. Right? One of the reasons for this, verse 3, is that human beings are now carnivorous. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. People will eat the meat of animals. Before the flood, the world was vegetarian. Post-flood, the world is carnivorous. So that raises the question, well, what about vegetarianism for Christians? As an issue, it seems to me, that should be a really back burner one. It shouldn't matter much to us about it. I just want to comment on the larger question of food. These days it's hard for Christians to eat together because everyone lives with some food restrictions. Now, generally, we should be gracious to all, but when you combine greater food allergies, greater food options, and the world of specific food preferences, you put that all together, it has put a damper on the hardiness of full-bodied celebration around a common meal. My parents' generation ate what was being harvested. My father-in-law told me the story of how when the green beans were being harvested, they had green beans for breakfast, for lunch, and for supper. And they thanked the Lord for it. And when strawberries came in, they had strawberries for breakfast and for lunch and for supper. Whatever was there is what they ate. Now, I don't know if this is true, but it is possible that we may be entering into a new era of food scarcity, not because of our incapacity to produce, but because of our incapacity to distribute, that will renew this idea of the common table and of the genuine giving thanks to God that we have something to eat. The language here is clear in verse 3, every living thing that moves shall be food for you. I had given you the green plants, I now give you everything, and this shall be is as close to a command as one can get without it being a command. Some suggest that since the pre-flood world was vegetarian, being vegetarian is closer to the heart of God than eating meat. That's not true, because God is declaring here that meat is and ought to be on the table. Now it's clear from ancient diets and comparing them to our own that they ate a lot less meat than we do here in American culture. So the issue of moderation in all things is also appropriate to consider. One conclusion that we should draw from all of this is that the the post-flood world is a lot more complicated than the pre-flood world ever was and that's how sin works. It complicates things. If you ever have a broken relationship and someone asks you about it and you say, well, it's complicated. What makes it complicated is sin. Verses four through six, the issue of blood comes to the forefront. The importance of blood has been with us in some implied way before, but now it's more direct. Chapter 3, God makes clothes with the skins of animals that involve the shedding of blood. Abel's offering of an animal uh, in Genesis 4, Abel's blood cries from the ground, the violence of men with one another, Genesis 6, 11, and 13, in their shedding of blood. Now, what's happening is blood is prohibited from being eaten with, uh, with an animal because the life is in the blood. Now, there's two ideas here. One is a pagan idea and the other is a Christian one. The pagan idea is that eating blood enables you to obtain its life force. That's a pagan idea and it's wrong. But I'll tell you a story about it. When I lived in Bolivia, there was a pastor's meeting. And at this big pastor's meeting, hundreds of pastors were showing up, there was one group of pastors that were in a, a, uh, a minivan that was driving down the road and it tipped over and a bunch of them died and a bunch of them were really, really injured. And the report came back to the meeting that these guys on their way had had this accident and that some of them were dead and some were dying. And they got everybody together and the missionary who was uh, uh, in charge of leading these pastors uh, says, well, let's pray. and uh, And all the pastors said, no, 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 we have to drink the blood of a black dog. The missionary realized, I have some more teaching to do. Because what they had concluded was that we've got to get some life force in us in order to impact what was going there. It's just pure pagan superstition. The other idea, though, more importantly, is the recognition of the value of life. The value even of animal life. It should create some sense of dissonance in us at the taking of animal life, we should not needlessly do so. And people who do so have something very wrong and sinful about them. I told a story about my father-in-law. When he was in World War II, he was walking with his uh, unit. And there was a guy in his unit who was such a person. He shot and killed farm animals just for the whatever pleasure he got out of it. He was just a very mean man, this guy in his unit. And one day they're walking and they're walking along a path that has a ravine and on the other side of the ravine there was a young German soldier that was coming toward them. Uh, My father-in-law figured he was 13 or 14 years old. This was fairly late in the war and he had his hands up in surrender and this guy who shot all the farm animals raised his rifle and shot and killed the young boy. You see, that's the world that's being addressed here in Genesis chapter 9. This dissonance about the taking of life, whether it's animal or human life, should be an absolute prohibition when it comes to murder. The world of fear that comes between humans and animals also comes between humans and humans, doesn't it? violence was a primary cause of the flood, is going to keep going on. And, and so, in verses 5 and 6, God says there is a reckoning from me for people who murder. That reckoning is that human life is so valuable because it is me- human beings are made in the image of God, it's so valuable that people who take a human life should be given capital punishment. Whoever sheds... The blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Now, it's not about the taking of all human life. It's not about defending oneself. It's not about accidents. It's not about warfare. What this is about is capital murder. And so we have some issues related to capital punishment. This verse is the institution of it. But there should be some warnings here, right? First, there must be a certainty of guilt, and second, it must be capital murder. And I have my own doubts about capital punishment in this country and the way that it is meted out, particularly when people are ta- uh, the courts are taking testimony for people who get lighter sentences for their own crimes because of being able to testify against a person in a capital murder case it seems to me that that person has too big of an incentive to not be completely truthful. And I I have some challenges with the way it's being done here in our nation. All of that, verse 7, the command to multiply is repeated again. Notice how it says it, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly, multiply. How many ways does God need to say it? (laughs) Now let's look at the Covenant that God makes with Noah. Verses 8 through 11, the parties of the covenant are first of all God, then Noah and sons, and finally the animal world. God making an agreement, a treaty with the animal world. What a fascinating thing. In fact, this whole section emphasizes the kindness of God by focusing on the receivers of God's covenant mercy. It's more about who gets the blessings than it is about what. what the the, uh, nuts and bolts of the treaty are all about. So look at chapter nine, verse eight. It says, God said to Noah and his sons. That's the first recipient of this treaty. Verse nine, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. Verse 10, every living creature that's with you, birds, livestock, every beast of the earth, as many as come out of the ark. Verse 11, I'll establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 15, I'll remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 16, I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 17, This is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You get the idea? God wants to emphasize, y'all are getting a blessing here. (laughs) God wants to bless every living creature on the earth by his grace. Beautiful. Now, there's two kinds of covenants that God makes. One's an obligatory covenant in which the master promises blessing and the servant promises obedience. This is not an obligatory covenant because animals don't know how to obey and we learned from chapter eight, verse 21 that human beings are incapable of it, right? (laughs) Animals don't know how and human beings are incapable of it. So what we have here is what's called a promissory covenant, a, a promise treaty in which the master makes promises to the servant who does the work here in Genesis chapter 9? It's all God. The servants are called upon, that is, the people and the animals, to accept and enjoy the promises. What are the promises? Verse 11 Never again will all flesh be destroyed by a flood. Never again will there be a worldwide flood. Verse 15 Waters will never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So what does God do as a sign of his covenant? He sets a rainbow in the clouds of the sky. Verse 13, that will be the sign of the covenant between God and the earth, that he's never gonna destroy the earth again with a flood. Verses 14 and 15, between Noah and his family, between God and the animal world. Verse 12, it actually says between God and all future generations, that is forever, the rainbow is the sign that God's made a covenant I'm not going to destroy the earth by a flood ever again. Now, it seems to me that Christians need to reassert our love of the rainbow. I recognize that it has become a symbol of uh, LGBT rights and such, but that's not what the rainbow really means, uh, does it? It is a sign of God's gracious covenant with the human race. In fact, the Bible tells us that in the throne room of God, right now, there's a rainbow. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness all around. Ezekiel writes about his vision of being carried to heaven. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking." Revelation chapter 4, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carneal, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Revelation 10, one, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. It's hard to capture all of the imagery here and what it means, but two things emerge. God's absolutely holy, and there's a rainbow. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad there's a rainbow in the throne room of heaven. Because it says here in this text, when God sees a rainbow, he's reminded as if he needs the reminder. He doesn't need it. It's just a way of accommodating our language. But he will remember not to destroy the earth. Out of his holiness, there's this rainbow that just says, don't destroy him. In his own character, he's so gracious and kind. God remembered Noah, chapter 8, verse 1, after the flood. Now the Bible is saying here that he will establish his covenant and he will remember this covenant, verse 15 and verse 16. Now very quickly, I just want to point out how sin rears its ugly head. Here in verses 18 through 28, we have an explanation of The flood again, and all people derive from these three sons of Noah. And in verses 20 to 25, we have a story of drunkenness, nakedness, and shame. Noah is the man who's the head of his family. He plants a vineyard, and then he gets drunk, and then he's naked, and then his son sees him. Uh, The Bible uh, tells us not as much as maybe our curiosity would want us. We're not told all that happened here, and for that, we should likely be glad the Bible doesn't satisfy our morbid curiosity and gossip about people's sins. The Bible doesn't hide them either, but it doesn't unnecessarily provide details. Ham's sin is what is emphasized in that he dishonored his father, and then he publicized his father's disgrace to his two brothers. In verse 23, Shem and Japheth are careful to be discreet and to honor their father in covering his nakedness. Notice in that verse that it says twice that they walked backward into uh, Noah's uh, place of residence, emphasizing their care not to bring Noah further shame. And then notice in verse 25 that the curse is not on Ham. The curse (coughs) is rather a curse on Canaan, who is the youngest son of Ham, who is the youngest son of Noah. A curse on the youngest son of the youngest son. Uh, The reason why I point this out is there were people who, before the U.S. Civil War, made this text be a racial agenda. That is, the world of Ham, they would argue, is where all uh, uh, people who are of a black color came from, and that curse is on them, and so they are somehow lesser human beings. That was the idea that was being presented. No, that's that's not anywhere here. And besides that, the curse isn't on Ham, who had many other children. The curse is specifically on Canaan, the youngest son of the youngest son, who lived in the land of, anybody want to say later, the land of Canaan, right? And so this may be actually a very early explanation of why the descendants of Canaan end up being expelled violently from the land of Israel by Joshua for their own sins of drunkenness and nakedness and shame, Already, family blessing and cursing leads to family rivalries, which will lead to the mess that we see next week in our last message in the series. Chapter nine concludes with Noah living for 950 years, and we'll see that the length of days of those after the flood is much, much shorter than those before the flood. How how do we conclude all this? I wanna spend some time on that. The new covenant in our Lord's blood is a promissory covenant just like the covenant God made with Noah and every inhabitant on the earth right after the flood, it's a promise. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it. God does all the work. Look at Romans 4:5. to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice that it is a covenant. The verses that we read before at the beginning of our service. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. And the covenant is I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What a beautiful promise. So the promise of the covenant of Noah <clears throat> I will never destroy the earth by a flood again. The promise of Christ's cross, I will remember your sins no more because they were laid on Jesus. The new covenant in our Lord's blood is a promissory covenant. We do nothing to earn or deserve it. God does all the work. He remembers our sins no more. He establishes us as seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 for just a second. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and get this, and raised us up with him. Positionally, it's past tense, if you've believed in Jesus, trusted him to forgive your sins, you are already raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is how certain your salvation is. Seated in the heavenly places with the rainbow there in the throne. The covenant's a promissory covenant. We do nothing to earn or deserve it. God does all the work. He remembers our sins no more. He establishes us as seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and He has established a sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant in Noah's day was what? The rainbow. The signs of this new covenant are baptism and the Lord's table. Look at these verses. He took a cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them. Drink all of it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. We are to do it in remembrance of him. Or Acts chapter 8 verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Romans chapter 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in a new In newness of life, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So what do we have here? We have two covenants. Both of them based on the promise of God, none of it about our own doing. One is a covenant that he will never destroy the earth again by a flood. And we thank him and praise him for it. The other is the covenant of the cross, whereby he will take our sins and lay them on Jesus, and he will remember them no more against us, and we are already, if we believe in Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. This is indeed good news. Will you pray with me? Now, Father, We've covered a lot of ground today on some controversial things, things about which good people can disagree, but let there be no mistake that there is a need for human beings to be forgiven of their sin, and you have provided a way. By sending your own Son, God the Son came and died and shed His blood to forgive us of our sins. And whoever trusts in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. O Lord, open eyes to see the truth of your word. Let the the challenge be to accept you at your word, not for me and my frail words where I probably have communicated some things that wouldn't be uh, uh, exactly perfect. We know your word is, so take your word and perfect it in us. Lord, for those who have put their faith in Christ, help us to see that the world and its troubles is passing away and that all we have and all we need is Christ in his name.